Good morning, everyone. Well, I'm thankful again for the opportunity to bring to you all the Word of God. Our text for this morning will be Psalm chapter 10. <coughs> and I'd like to read this psalm. I'd like to read this psalm in its entirety um, before we dig into it. So if you can turn to Psalm 10. <coughs> May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Why do you stand afar off, O Yahweh? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. The wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns Yahweh. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a, liar, as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches. He bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Yahweh. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, you will not require it. You have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. Yahweh is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. O Yahweh, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth, will no longer cause terror. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, <coughs> let's pray and ask the Lord for help once more. Father, we humbly come before you to sit at the foot of your throne and to be taught by you. We know that you must give ears to hear and eyes to see and a mind that understands spiritual truth. If the Holy Spirit does not help us, we will not be able to know, believe, and do that which you call us to. Help us now, we ask, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now, without giving too much away before we get there, as I was reading this psalm over and over the past couple of weeks, it brought to mind a man I once knew of that had done some house painting on the side. And upon completion, upon a job, if there was some defect or something that needed his attention, uh, he would respond with, 
can't see it from my house. Now contrast that with the God who sees all. The God who never sleeps or slumbers. That nothing is hidden from God. This is in fact seen in some of the catechism questions that we've taught our children. Children, if you know these, you can just shout them out. Does God know all things? Yes. Nothing can be hidden from God. And can you see God? No, but he always sees me. As we read in this psalm, and we'll see more deeply as we go back to it together, this reality was and is void from the thoughts of fallen men. And in we can see that in our current day and age especially. That the world at large does not consider God in word, thought, or deed. We see corruption at our highest levels of government go unpunished. Movies, TV, large corporations, sporting events, businesses all celebrating the things that God hates. Our justice system completely turned upside down where people are protesting at an abortion clinic and go to prison for many years and yet people rioting and destroying police stations get a slap on the wrist. As a Christian, you can see all that and wonder, where is God? Why isn't he doing anything? Perhaps you've experienced or are currently experiencing more direct and personal persecution or affliction, and you think, how long, O Lord? Well, we'll see a few things as we go back through this psalm together. One is that in the midst of what seems to be unchecked wickedness, God's people cry out for justice. And two, though the wicked think they will never see God's judgment, it is inevitable. And third, God enabled his people to endure the wickedness that surrounds them. As we see in verse 1, the psalmist David asked by asking the question, Why do you stand afar off, Yahweh? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Here David essentially asked the same question twice, just in a different way. Uh, William S. Plumer, whose commentary was helpful to me, states, quote, The expostulation, meaning David's complaint, the expostulation is reverent and not unusual. Plumer continues, a like form was employed by the Savior on the cross. It is based on the belief that God sees what is going on, has power to give relief, is a righteous God, and will finally do justice. Why then does he seem to be an indifferent spectator and withhold aid when it is so much needed? End quote. This experience was not unique to David, of course. We and all those pilgrims that have come before us have had to live in a fallen, broken, sin-cursed world. And living in this sin-cursed world, the pilgrim faces various afflictions and trials, which can often come as attacks from the children of the devil, and as, we as we see that in verse 2. <coughs> verse 2, in pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. And we continue to see that throughout the psalm. Verses 8 through 10, he sits in the lurking places of the villages, in the hiding places. He kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches. He bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He sit. So you know there are three different degrees in murder. Well, if you didn't know that, I'm going to tell you. 
There are three different degrees of murder in our criminal justice system here in America, and the worst of the three is first-degree murder. Why? Because it involves pre-planning, premeditation. The wicked here are those who are premeditate doing harm to the innocent. He sits, he hides, he stealthily watches, he lurks, he crouches. This all denotes premeditation, exceedingly wicked. And it's this exceeding wickedness against God's people that make them cry out along with David, why do you stand afar off, O Yahweh? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? We see similar cries from God's people throughout the scriptures. This cry for justice, Exodus 2, 23 through 25. Now it came about that in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God hearing their groaning, and God, so God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. Fast forward to Revelation 6, 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the, altars, uh, underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So from the Israelites in captivity in Egypt during, uh, enduring extreme hardship and abuse at the hands of Pharaoh and the Egyptians to the martyred saints awaiting the justice of God, the justice that God has promised, we see that this attitude, this disposition or longing for God's promised justice is the norm for God's people, and it's an appropriate response based on what we know about God. What did Plumer say earlier? It is based on the belief that God sees what is going on, has the power to give relief, is a righteous God, and will finally do justice. And yet, the wicked do not believe or acknowledge this. Instead, in verse 3, it says the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He curses and spurns Yahweh. There is no indifference with God. There are those who would like to suppose maybe that their indifference to God is merely intellectual. Um, or they're really not that hostile to him. But if you dig deep enough, if you bring the word of God to them, if you bring both the law and the gospel to bear upon their soul, they can only have two responses ultimately. Either an Acts 2 response, being repentance unto life, or an Acts 7 response, which says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him, at Stephen. And what did they do to Stephen? They stoned him to death. The same type of response as we've seen from Pharaoh in Exodus. Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? See, there is no middle ground with God. You are either with God or against him. And this antagonistic disposition is in the heart of everyone who is without the spirit. This antagonism against the God who created them is manifested in various ways. In verse 3, 
we see that great pride fills the heart of the wicked or the ungodly. He boasts of his heart's desire. He is not ashamed of his wickedness, but he revels in it. Verse 3 also describes him as greedy. He loves money. He loves money so much that he won't share any of his resources with anyone. He so despises God that he actually curses and spurns Yahweh. So that natural result of this pride, this haughtiness, verse 5 says, is that the wicked will not seek God. And actually, the rest of verse 5 says, all his thoughts are, there is no God. The word of God says this is characteristic of the ungodly. Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. In our passage here where it says all his thoughts are there is no God, the actual Hebrew rendering of that is no God, all his thoughts. Atheism, which Spurgeon said was a strange vice that not even the devil ever fell into, but atheism is really just a, a way for people to suppress their consciences so that they can attempt to enjoy their sin and remove the guilt of not living their life unto the glory of God. It is their futile attempt to usurp the place of God on his throne and set themselves upon that throne. Sound familiar? It is no wonder the children of the devil do the works of their father. They refuse to acknowledge God and give him the glory that he is due. Romans 1, 28, 32. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to depraved mind, to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This isn't in my notes, but since I'm on this, I just want the children to understand that disobedience of parents is juxtaposed with all these other vile sins, murder. So just remember that a violation of the fifth commandment is taken very seriously in the eyes of God. This refusal to give God the glory he deserves is in the heart of every fallen individual. The, the wicked refuse to seek God. In their pride, they see no need for him because they think that whatever sustenance they have, whatever success has been afforded to them, whatever provisions they've been granted are the works of their own hands. And this seems to provide some of the reasoning behind the NASB translator's choice to translate the Hebrew word here for prosper in verse 5 because it, it seems to fit the context of this description of the pride of the wicked. That word prosper, some translator, translators have translated it. His, his ways are always grievous, as in the King James, or his ways are always perverse, filthy, crooked, profane. But prosperous does seem to fit best here, I think. And in reading this, I couldn't help but think of that very prosperous man that the Lord Jesus spoke of in the parable of Luke chapter 12. 
verses 16 through 21. I'm actually going to turn there <coughs> and read that. Luke, 16, uh, Luke 12. Luke 12, 16. And he, Jesus, told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So, is the man who stores a treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You see, this man in Luke 12, same man in Psalm, same attitude in Psalm 10, sees no need for God, has no thoughts for God, does not seek God, no God, all his thoughts. Remember what James says in chapter 4 of his epistle? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Let me ask you this question by way of encouragement and reminder not for the purposes of heaping condemnation upon yourself, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but as a way to keep our minds on the things above where Christ is. Where is God in your thoughts, in your plans? Is it as David? I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hands uphold me. Or is it, no God, all his thoughts? As a result of this reverence and honor to God lacking from this wicked person's thoughts in Psalm 10, verse 5b says, God's judgments are on high, out of his sight. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The mind of the wicked is so depraved, it's so antagonistic towards God that they cannot receive wisdom or discernment from God, and they wouldn't know what to do with it if it fell in their lap. His pride continues to be manifest as he snorts at his, at his adversaries. The last part of verse 5 and continues throughout the psalm. Verse 6, he says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. Regarding this passage, Thomas Horn says, Prosperity begets presumption, and he who has been long accustomed to see his designs succeed begins to think it impossible they should ever do otherwise. The long-suffering of God, instead of leading such a one to repentance, only hardens him in his iniquity. Because sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, he thinks 
it will not be executed at all, end quote. Remember the man of Luke 12 parable? He thought just as this man here in Psalm 10. Now in verse 11 of Psalm 10, he has a temporary lapse in his atheism. He says to himself, God has forgotten. All of a sudden, God is there. God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. Think back to verse 1 when David says, Why do you hide yourself, Yahweh? He continues, He will never see it. Surely his reasoning, surely his reasoning is rooted in God's long-suffering and delayed judgment. He thinks that because he's getting away with all his wickedness that surely there either is no God or if there is a God, then he's an indifferent God, cold, forgetful, without care, uninvolved. He takes God's silence as overlooking. Does God just overlook, sort of just wink at sin? The wicked seems to think so. Verse 13, he said, has said to himself, you will not require it. He thinks God will not require it. Um, if you want, you can turn to Psalm 50, since we're in the Psalms already. I want to read, starting in verse 17 of Psalm 50. Verse 17. Let's start to ver verse 16. But the wicked, but to the wicked, God says, "What right have you to tell of my statutes?" and to take my covenant in your mouth. For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you in pieces and there will be none to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me, and to him who orders his way aright, I shall so show the salvation of God. Does that sound like an indifferent, uninvolved God to you? Certainly not. God will avenge the blood of his saints and punish those who persecuted his sheep. He will... Verse uh, 15 says of Psalm 10, he will break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. But it must be in God's time and in God's way. Remember what Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3, verses 8 through 9. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Were we not all at one time enemies of God, enemies of Christ and his gospel? No one is born regenerate. Just imagine your spiritual journey. Has the Lord not been abundantly patient with you during your time of rebellion? And does he not daily continue to show, show you grace and mercy? Praise God that he is long-suffering, or else no one, none would be saved. As we come to the final section of this psalm, we will see that God enables his people to endure the wickedness that surrounds them. 
Look at verse 16. It says, We see this declaration, this proclamation of David. Yahweh is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. When's the last time you met a Philistine? How about a Canaanite? Any Edomite neighbors? We've seen from our time in Exodus how Yahweh completely decimated the Egyptians. Be it Rome, Persia, Greece, Babylon, or Assyria, these once very powerful nations have either ceased to exist altogether or they're just a mere shadow of their once very powerful status. Now contrast that with the one who forever reigns and has always reigned and will forever reign. Yahweh is king forever and ever or the eternal king. You know, every two and four years, this thing called an election cycle comes up where we as citizens, 18 years and older, get to vote for people, politicians, to represent us in our government. And with these elections comes the temptation to be anxious. The outcomes of these elections can have direct implications that affect our daily lives, financially, parentally, even religiously. The past 20 to 30 years or so, and even going further back to Roe v. Wade, politics has become filled with more and more issues and laws that intersect with our Christian faith. It's certainly understandable that we might have a vested interest in wanting to see good, godly leaders elected to office who rule righteously. That's a good desire. But there is one office that will never be vacated and never be voted on, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And knowing that our God is God and that our King is King forever should bring us immense comfort, peace, and joy. We need to be reminded of this truth because of how easy it is to forget and think that what we see with our eyes is what's real and true and lasting when in fact it is the one we cannot see who is the eternal one, who in fact is truth. Now to add to our comfort, not only is God sovereign, but as we've seen through our time this morning, God is not indifferent. Verse 17, O Yahweh, you have heard the desire of the humble. Humble here can also be translated afflicted. What are the desires of the humble or afflicted people of God? Well, <coughs> that God's reign would be manifested in such a way that every knee would bow before him. Certainly we desire to see that. We hope and we pray especially for our loved ones that we know personally, that that happens as a result of regeneration of God, working in their heart and granting them the spirit of God, they would be saved. But if not, well, then we desire to see God's judgment carried out and his righteous rule come to its consummation. We long for Christ's return. This from 18th century theologian Adam Clark regarding the desires of God's people. Quote, see the economy of the grace of God. First, God prepares the heart. Second, God suggests the prayer. Third, God hears what is prayed. And fourthly, God answers the petition. He who has a cry in his heart after God may rest assured that that, that cry proceeded from a divine preparation and that an answer will soon arrive, end quote. The second part of verse 17 states that God will strengthen the hearts of the humble, the afflicted, 
Now some versions render strengthen as prepare. Either way, the preparation is the strengthening. As a boxer prepares for many months before the real battle in the ring begins, so God will prepare and strengthen our hearts for the affliction that has been assigned to us. Assigned to us, you ask. Philippians 127-30 Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of, of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Here to quote from Pastor Nate from last week, the suffering of God's people does not happen indiscriminately or by chance, but is sovereignly ordained and permitted by God. I'm going to repeat that. The suffering of God's people does not happen indiscriminately or by chance, but is sovereignly ordained and permitted by God. Remember that old Luther quote, even the devil is God's devil? God certainly, obviously, not the author of evil, but he does ordain and permit his people to suffer. Why? Pastor Nate mentioned it last week again. To purify the saints and to punish unbelievers. Do not the Proverbs say, in Proverbs 17, the crucibles for silver and the furnace for gold, but Yahweh tests hearts? For when we are tested by trials, persecutions, afflictions of various kinds, and we really lean into the Lord, our trust, our faith becomes an experiential one. My kids and I like to sometimes play this game called the trust game. <laughs> Maybe some of you have done this, so... I'll have them line up with their back facing me, and I'll stand behind them. I'll say, okay, just stand straight and just fall back. I'll catch you. And they know me. They know that I love them. They know that I always try to keep my word. But there's always that hesitancy. But after the first time, and it, and it gets progressively more dangerous. First, I catch them barely, you know, at the top. And then it, I go, okay, go lower, go lower, go lower, until it's almost to the ground. I won't be able to do this much longer with my, <laughs> with my boys as they get older, but for now I can still do it. But what happens from that first fall back where I catch them to where they're almost hitting the ground and I stop them right before they hit the ground? Their trust becomes an experiential trust. First Peter 1, 3 through 9, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. 
The last verse of Psalm 10, verse 18, God will vindicate or judge in, f in the favor of the orphan. Now the word orphan can be translated here in such a way where it means fatherless or friendless or comfortless. It's not necessarily limited to actual orphans. So God will vindicate or judge in favor of these persecuted ones. But he will judge against the man who is of the earth so that he will no longer cause terror. The term man who is of the earth is, as Plumer writes in his commentary, is earthy, terrestrial, in his aims, hopes, and desires. The men of the world have their portion in this life. They may become persecutors and oppressors at any moment. And Mudge provides this paraphrase of this final verse, quote, This worthless mortal, how much soever a man of earth, cherished with all its favors and supported with all its strength, shall no longer be able to terrify the people of Jehovah, the God of heaven, end quote. Brethren, the day is coming. Every morning we awake is a day closer to the Lord's return. And when that day comes, all will be made right. I want to end with this passage in Revelation. Revelation 21, 1-8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for all you have done for us in and through your Son. Thank you for granting us the Holy Spirit so we would be made children of God. We have seen this morning that though your people will suffer in this life, you will avenge us and you will strengthen us and you will comfort us and you will bring us to yourself at the last day. Help us as we continue our pilgrimage on this earth for as long as you have ordained so that you so that we would be sanctified and that you would be glorified and that your Christ would receive the full reward of his suffering. Amen.